Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Glee Smith. Yesterday, for the first time in U.S. history, a former president was charged with a felony. 34 felonies, to be exact, as Donald Trump was indicted in New York City. Our show got bumped yesterday Aww. as we all listened to D.A. Alvin Bragg. Has justice been served or has the former president been treated unfairly and was watching a closed door more important than sharing some of the other political breakthroughs happening around the country right now? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Text us, one 800 639-9120. We did get one more late show text Monday about the controversial use of the word ladies in an email sent from Vito Perone, who was the hopeful new superintendent of East Hampton Schools. I wanted to know from you if ladies was a term that some of you, especially our female identifying listeners, found offensive. On Monday night, about 150 protesters showed up in East Hampton to support Vito Perone. And the Zoom school committee meeting last night crashed when over 300 people tried to attend. If you have more thoughts on the East Hampton School superintendent situation, you can still send us a text 1-800-639-9120. I think context is important. Sean Farley from Florence (laughs) texted, Hi, Monty. The whole East Hampton thing perplexed me. I think there's something else going on besides the ladies' remark. I think so, too. (laughs) I use it all the time when I'm referring to my gal pals or even just now to the female receptionist at my eye doctor. They were not offended, although I paused after saying it. Is it okay if it's from one woman to another, but men can't say it? I don't think so. Just don't call me ma'am. Again, context is important. Later in the show, a fabulous 413 exclusive will introduce you to Western Mass's latest addition to the Guinness Book of World Records at a library in Hatfield. But first... Well, yeah, I should maybe record this while we're just talking. She's good. She is good. She's good. So you're just here to wear the hat now. Yeah, I just I just yeah. carry the recorder. I don't want to say which which venue your hat. Yeah, it's a bar in East Hampton, but right. we can't but tell you to go there. Unnamed, no, the but unnamed. We can tell you that they have delicious cocktails. Yes. But you shouldn't drink them. And they're not a small but bar. But you should definitely drink them. It's okay to talk about drinking the cocktails because we haven't told you where to go. Oh, or okay. how much they cost. Or how, or much, how they much they cost. cost. Right. Mo Willems, you worked in public television for a long time, so you know all the rules about what you can and can't say. Uh, yes, I absolutely do. I started out at Sesame Street. I'll actually tell you a weird thing, which I probably shouldn't tell you about Sesame Street. Can't, totally I can't wait us. now. I started in the 90s, and in the 60s, they had made a rule that you couldn't talk or do bits about the color of the puppets because when the show was started, some kids had black and white televisions, and then they would feel like they were missing out, which made perfect sense. Yeah. But the only people in the mid-90s who had black and white TV sets would have been hipsters. Right. Right? And they deserve it. Right, exactly. So (laughs) we could say, like, Elmo, you brightly colored monster. But you couldn't say you red brightly colored monster. Yeah, we can do a bit about that. Elmo doesn't believe this. That seems weirdly insulting in a way I can't quite put my head around. You can't quite put your, right, fuzzy nose on. Yeah, you could pull it off like Ernie would do to Bert, and then you talk like this the rest of the show. Ernie, give me a favor. Put my nose back on. Oh, well, well, sure, Bert. It has the same flavor is calling things urban. (laughs) (laughs) Never goes over that well. We are talking with former PBS star and now across the board star here at the R. Michelson Gallery on Main Street in Northampton with New York Times bestselling author and illustrator Mo Willems from right down the street practically. Annually, you do an exhibit of works here at the R. Michelson Gallery that may not be the kind of things, or exclusively the kind of things, people are used to seeing from you. The Pigeon, Elephant and Piggy, Unlimited Squirrels, the list goes on. Yes. 
So this is our sixth annual exhibit that is a benefit exhibit, and I'm so glad that my wife- Is Cher hiding? Cher gave him the finger so that she, he would know to add one more to it. It's seven, six, seven. This is the seventh annual exhibit that we have done in the spring that showcases art that I don't usually do, or you don't usually see me do, and that also benefits a local institution that is doing great work that sometimes you don't always see. And so I'm so glad that my wife is here today, Cher Willems, to tell you about this year's beneficiary from this exhibit. Cher Cher Willems. (laughs) This year, the proceeds are going to Empty Arms Bereavement Services. They're based out of Florence, and they do an amazing work helping people who have lost babies or pregnancies. Mm. Since the pandemic, they've actually been doing that Uh, a lot of that stuff virtually, and Mm -hmm. so they've got a really wide reach. What was it that turned you on to the kind of work that they're doing here locally? Well, I was told about it by a friend, and I thought, well, that is just really important work that needs doing, and I'm so glad someone's doing it, because there really isn't any funding at a hospital to help somebody who finds themselves in that situation. Mm -hmm. They are experts at something that nobody wants to be experts in, and 20% of pregnancies end for some reason, Mm -hmm. and we don't really talk about it. So it seemed like a good thing to do. And the name of it is, once again? Empty Arms Bereavement Services. Mm, Right here in Florence. Mm -hmm. That's right. And if you look at this year's sketchbook, which is what this exhibit is about, it's called Wrecked Tangles, Basic Shapes Under Too Much Pressure. Uh Homonyms. I love homonyms. (laughs) I'm a big homonym fan as well. I'm glad to be in this homonymous group. I made the best dad joke of all time about homonyms. Yeah, like one of our first couple of weeks at NEPM. I don't remember what it was. I I remember what it is. Homonyms. Speaking of the Muppet Show and Sesame Street. I had said to Khalees something about two words in a row with a letter P and a third one that had to do with cold. And I said pneumonia. Very nice. But it doesn't sound like words that sound like P. And she said, you, you're not going to homonym at me. Yeah. And I said it was an ad hominem attack. And oh. I was like, this is the ultimate one-two dad punch. Oh. <laughs> anyway. It's a beautiful thing. Back to wrecked rectangles. My sketchbooks, which I put together now, this is the 30th sketchbook that I've done every year for clients and friends. And over the last 15 years, they have really become things that I don't do otherwise. They've been very abstract. And I think ultimately the theme of this is as the way the world continues to go, the way that it continues to go, I feel, and I think others feel, that they are losing agency. Mm. We are losing a grip on what we can do and what we can't do and how we can do it and how we can't do it. That is the pressure. And so when Cher discovered this group that is doing really, really important work for people who have no control over what has happened to them in a much more fundamental and deep sense, it just felt like that was the right combination for this show. This is a pretty easy exhibit in that everything is what it says it is. So this is an octagon under too much pressure. And all of these, I should say, are shapes that you've heard of under too much pressure, as Mo said before. So this octagon looks like it wants to be eight-sided like a stop sign, but one of the sides has been folded in on itself. It looks almost like a smushed apple with a stem. Or... Oh, that's it. I was thinking melting. Okay. But that's, that's great. I, I love like it. chocolate dipped strawberry. <laughs> 
I think the other way to do it is don't look at the title and see what shape you think that is right. under too much pressure. That one I cheated because it says triangle under too much pressure, but it looks like a shark fin. Nothing strikes terror in the hearts of people more than uh, that coming out of the water. Um, let's see. All right, Here no, we no go. more cheating. Is it just a squished circle? It's a point. Oh, a point. Close. I tried to make a point with that. Yeah, point. you did. But I, I don't think that I'm See, Khalees, you're never going to get out of this. No. There's, now there's two dads making so, bad jokes. So that is to show there are other abstractions and works that I've done over the last year that are perhaps less grim. Um, <laughs> I don't think those are grim. I think yeah. that the shapes are beautiful. It just, it's, a, it's a statement about, like, you may be an octagon in your everyday life, but you're feeling a tremendous amount of pressure, and you're not quite yourself today. This is one of the things that I think starts happening is that people say like, oh, everybody's under so much pressure, but not me. Like, I'm fine. I just feel bad for the others with all the pressure they're under. Yeah. But we, it all manifests itself on us in ways that perhaps we don't always understand. And in my case, I have a tendency to get bent out of shape. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this exhibit is, just finding ways to bend other shapes. So then this gets positive because this year... <laughs> is my 20th year in publishing. 20 years since The Pigeon Drove the Bus. April 1st, April Fool's Day in 2003, my first book was published, and as far as people understood at that point, was going directly to remainders. Uh -huh. Do not pass go. <laughs> Certainly do not collect $200 in royalty. And instead, I have been allowed to do all kinds of crazy things over the last 20 years. These books have allowed me to make other books and explore other characters and make abstractions and write operas and do comedy shows and write symphonic pieces. So I'm very, very grateful to have been published when I was published. So this is sort of a combination of a lot of works that I have made over the last 20 years. And you can see some of the, I'm assuming, early sketches or not finished pieces, just the blue right. lines the blue of the lines. Pigeons. That's exactly right. So the blue lines are when, where I'm discovering what's going on. So it's when I'm making the choices about where the expression should be or how it should feel. And often, because in animation, you would start with a blue and then go to red for the correction. And you did do animation. And I was an animator for 15 years or so. You can see in those early sketches that differential. The other thing that I've done pretty much from the beginning of my career is I've always date stamped my work. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting is up until a couple years ago, when you would go through my files, almost all of the date stamps are Sundays or holidays. Uh -huh. <laughs> Because they're the only days where the phone isn't ringing and I can actually get some work done. Um, here, October 31st, 2007, I am doing a drawing of Wilbur the Naked Mole Rat. Look, July 4th. Oh, yeah. 2008, I'm drawing a cat the cat. February 14th of 2009. <laughs> Feeling particular. Although I'm still married, just to, to, to be very clear. That's okay, Valentine's yeah. Day is a fake yeah. holiday. Yeah. yeah. It's the patron saint of bees. So if you're a beekeeper, I think it's an important, and Catholic, if you're a Catholic beekeeper. Especially. 
Coming up, more with Northampton's own New York Times bestselling author and illustrator, Mo Willems, whose new fundraising exhibit is now open at the R. Michelson Gallery. We'll hear about what's made his iconic pigeon endure for the last 20 years, and we'll hear what the pigeon has in store for grown-ups now that he's 20 years old. And later in the show, a library in Hatfield has earned itself a place in the Guinness Book of World Records. We take a tour and show you why in a Fab 413 exclusive. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. Coming up, Western Mass's foray into the Guinness Book of World Records. We'll get the specifics at a library in Hatfield. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on the Trump indictment, justice is served, a political witch hunt, a waste of media oxygen, text us at 1-800-639-9120. Back to Main Street in Northampton with the author and illustrator who taught the roots and Jimmy Fallon how to draw the pigeon on The Tonight Show on Monday night, Mo Willems. We're at the R. Michelson Gallery with Mo Willems, who has an exhibit out, Wrecked Angles, that will help support Empty Arms, an organization in Florence that helps bereavement through the loss of a pregnancy or a child. A huge and hard thing. I'm so lucky I haven't had to go through that, but it's great that you are stepping up, you and your wife share, to support this through your artwork. And we're also looking back on 20 years of you creating the iconic pigeon, Mo. You'd mentioned before that it was uh, about to go straight to the used bookshop. You thought when the pigeon was created, what made publishers at that time think that nobody would want it? And why do you think pigeon is such an enduring character now to the point where there's new pigeon books coming out this year? That's right. I don't know that I can answer your second question, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I can answer the first question. When I first wrote Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, it was a sketchbook, much like the rectangle. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think it was going to be a children's book. And my wife, Cher, at the time, was working as a part-time librarian at a school and just started reading it for story time and said, I think this is a children's book. Mm. And I was like, oh, wow, maybe this is a children's book. Always goes back to Cher again. Always goes back to Cher. (laughs) I did the pigeon book, and the agent sent it to every single publisher, and they all agreed with me this was not a children's book. They thought I was right and Cher was wrong, and they all said the same thing. And I tend to exaggerate. So I'll cut the number in half. (laughs) Eight billion publishers said, your book is unusual. And only one publisher said, your book is unusual. And it wasn't pejorative. And they published it in a spirit of, eh. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, are they glad they did. I mean, have like... The Pigeon is, you've taken over the Kennedy Center, for those of who have been following that, the right. first ever education artist in residence. That is exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to be back at the Kennedy Center at the end of the month. I know it's a local show. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about D.C. The, the fabulous, whatever the area code of D.C. Yeah. is. Right. Like, you know, like, the spring break is coming up, yeah. like, that week yeah. that you get in April. Well so, like, you know, if you, it's not that far to D.C., says so someone with family there. Yeah. Here's oh. an event I'm doing that you should definitely not get tickets to. Uh-huh. Because you're not allowed to tell people to do things on public radio. Uh, Renee Fleming, soprano, and I, so soprano, uh-huh. um, are performing all of these famous arias. I basically Al Yankovic a bunch of arias. <laughs> <laughs> to be about emotions. And I, I felt guilty in rehearsal. I actually had to email Al and just say, like, just so you know, I'm, yeah. I'm doing your thing. And he gave me permission. Oh, good. Um... 
And so it's called The Ice Cream Truck is Broken and Other Emotional Arias. And we're performing that along with a new pigeon opera, Don't Let the Pigeon Stay Up Late, a 20-minute opera that is composed by Carlos Simon, who is, did my first opera. He is the Kennedy Center uh, composer in residence, an unbelievable composer. Mm. And I'm excited about this, but what I'm most excited about, because the pitch was, if you know anything about Renee Fleming... She has amazing dresses. So she is going to wear the most amazing dress, and I'm going to wear an 80s tuxedo that is a version of that dress. I, I cannot <laughs> wait to see this. Do not I go can, see this show. I can get my own tickets. But what's interesting is like the pigeon has been out for 20 years. Yeah. So there could be a bunch of people in that audience who grew up with the pigeon and now are grown-ups. How does that make you feel as an author of children's book material? It makes me super happy that there are people who have grown up who remember and still take pleasure in The Pigeon as an author, mm -hmm. as a person. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel very, very old. It is the next step in, like when you're on the subway and someone says, has a kid and says, uh, excuse me, sir, my kid wants to sit there. And you're like, I'm not a sir. Mm -hmm. It's one of those sort of stages. I probably shouldn't tell you that my sister that has just turned 20 got these books from me when she was a kid. Yeah. Sorry. I That's amazing. No, but it's amazing, though. <laughs> it's amazing, but it's weird. And when you're on D in D.C. on the subway yeah. and her sister's on the subway, yeah. she's going to be the one that says, I'm going to have to give this old yeah. man my seat. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, she would yeah. if she talked to people, but she's, she's real shy. It's really kind of crazy. And again, the pigeon was born in one of my notebooks saying, don't write about other things. Write about me. Mm. All your other stuff stinks. Just write about me. And the fact that 20 years later, I'm still angering this bird <laughs> by doing other things does give me pleasure. The pigeon appears in every single one of your books, right? The pigeon is hidden in every single one of my books, including the pigeon books. Okay, that one is easier right. to find. But what we've done in the last couple pigeon books, I don't even know if you've noticed this, the last two, and we've got a holiday book coming out, we have changed the copyright page into a copy wrong page. Uh, ah. so we're doing deep dives now. I love it. The other thing that, you know, talking with Mo Willems, who has an incredible exhibit up at the R. Michelson Gallery here that's going to support the Florence-based Empty Arms Bereavement Charity. This show is up through the end of April. I think it's here for the month. That's yep. correct. Yep. And if you decided you wanted to come and look at this stuff and wanted to support this organization, no one from public media is going to stop you. Absolutely. In addition to the, to the 20th anniversary edition of the Pigeon Book and a new Pigeon Book coming out, there right. is also, for the 20-year-olds like your sister, Khalees, <laughs> like a pigeon advice for grown-ups. That's right. Here's what happened. The pigeon never knew that it was in books and just recently discovered that it was in books. And then, worst of all, discovered that these books were not tragedies, but comedies. Uh -oh. The pigeon had a stranger-than-fiction moment. <laughs> if I understood that, I would agree. You have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. So you're the young gentleman who called me about the narrator. So, the pigeon decided to write a book of his own, of deep pigeonisms. Mm -hmm. And what this is, is ideas that the pigeon has about himself. It's sort of a spoof of uh, happiness is a warm puppy. Uh -huh. I'm sort of peeing on happiness is a warm puppy. <laughs> Good grief. Although that's probably not the best way to say it. You're pigeon pooping from a high yes, altitude. Right. Let's grab, I'm going to grab a copy of the book because I'm, I'm going to get these quotes wrong because I okay. didn't write them, obviously. The pigeon wrote. Secret thing. 
Yes. He's got to kill on radio. So everything has got a secret thing. We talk about pigeon being hidden in every book. So every pigeon book needs something special hidden. So this is Be the Bus, the lost and profound wisdom of the pigeon. And if you're the sort of person who doesn't like book jackets, you discover the book is in fact Oh, it's the pigeon. the pigeon. One eye on each side of the book. Yeah, you could hold that up to your face yeah. and you would become the pigeon. So here are some pigeonisms. Better to say, I love you more than ever than I used to love you less. <laughs> um, happiness is escaping a warm puppy. <laughs> Rat. Aren't complainers the worst? <laughs> Instant gratification takes so long to say. <laughs> so these are all of the pigeons deep. Oh, here we go. Success is 99% perspiration and 5% approximation. Oh, the accuracy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this was a really great cathartic project for the pigeon. 20 years of being laughed at for its strivings. Now it can be laughed at for its thoughts. Now it's intentional. <laughs> and well, I'm not saying it's intentional. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a different audience yeah. that can now laugh at it. You would say he was pigeonholed? Yes. It was pigeonholed into that a certain exactly right. well market. Well done, now... Welcome to dad joke land. <laughs> I will never oh, be clean. You guys have been working together a couple months <laughs> well, already. We've worked together it for is, a long time before that, too. It is a slippery slope. The other thing that's exciting about the 20th anniversary edition of the Pigeon Book, if you already have it and have had it for 20 years, A, you've probably destroyed it by now, and B, my kids found this out and surprised me when I came home. It comes with a board game. And it's bigger. Oh. This is bigger than the other Pigeon Book by a full inch. And for me, that just feels like the drawings feel different. And we created a board game in the back, a Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus board game. And there's the pigeon on the back saying, are you playing with my dreams? <laughs> The poor pigeon. Oh, I feel like pigeon. it's an existential crisis that I didn't really think about until this new pigeon book, Be the Bus, has come no, out. Now it's like, it's we like, are monsters. We are monsters to the pigeon. <laughs> There's this moment in the first pigeon book where the kids are yelling, no, no, and the pigeon has been just screaming. Just looks demonic screaming, <laughs> Just having the worst time. And I just want to find this page because the pigeon... I'm reading the book out loud, and everybody's screaming, no, you can't, and I don't know. And then they drive, and there's the pigeon, so sad. This, <laughs> and the audience, particularly the moms, go, oh, but you're the one who is yelling no at him. <laughs> the whole time, you did this. <laughs> you broke him. You broke him. Doing the pigeon. Thanks so much to Mo Willems and his wife Cher for showing us around his new shapes. You can see his Wrecked Angles exhibit, a benefit for Empty Arms Bereavement Support, at the R. Michelson Gallery in Northampton through the end of the month. Later in the show, Trump was indicted in New York City yesterday, a memorable moment in U.S. history, but was justice served? Is this the witch hunt? Is it good for the Republican Party? Is it good for anyone? Text us at 1-800-639-9120. You can also contact us if you have more to say about the controversy surrounding Vito Perone, who was the hopeful new superintendent of East Hampton Schools, but who was allegedly pre-fired by the school committee for using the word ladies in an email sent to two female committee members who allegedly called the term a microaggression. 
300 people literally crashed the Zoom school committee last night. So you may still have some thoughts. Text us, 1-800-639-9120. Up next, a world record in our own backyard. We'll introduce you to Western Mass's latest addition to the Guinness Book of World Records right smack dab in the middle of Hatfield. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. And now... A fabulous 413 exclusive, a new Guinness World Record from right here in Western Mass. Oh, I didn't mean that. That's off the record. Uh, Too late. I already hit go. So that's always like... Lisa's life is always on the record. (laughs) Good, because I already hit go. So this is where it all happens in terms of the entertaining. This table is like this all the time. It's, I don't know, 20 some odd feet. And I keep it extended all the time because we fill it all the time. You never know who's coming over. I never know who's coming to dinner. Uh, And I'm actually prepping for Passover. So we're gonna fill all this and more, which is exciting. But like Julia's been at this table. and Julia who? Julia Child. No way. (laughs) Julia Child presents the Chicken Sisters. Let me tell you what my biggest pet peeve is, the people who add S to her name and say Julia Childs. Oh yeah. It's Julia Child. Are there people that do that? Yes, there are. I believe it. I don't because they just don't know. I, I give them one pass. I don't She's give so them powerful, two. She's so powerful. It's like there's more than one. Yeah, there I, you go. This I is like the point where I say like Julia Child is one of my child is one of my heroes. She was my after school oh, TV. Shit. It wasn't Sesame Street, and it was maybe sometimes like Mr. Rogers, but no, it was there was a block on GBH at the time. It was Julia Child, and then Frugal Gourmet, and then Yan Ken Cook, and that's what I watched after school. Yeah, we don't we don't talk about Frugal Gourmet anymore. I know. Well, I don't know what happened. Yeah, so. no, it's not. It's not okay. <laughs> Am I allowed to say it? Sure. He was a pedophile. Yeah. Oh, okay. And he got busted, and his whole brand got. I mean, I actually took his books out of the library. I made a very conscious decision. I mean, those are the kind of things like I think about. Why are you in my library as a book? We are at this gigantic, twenty-foot-long dining room table of Lisa Eckes, formerly of the Lisa Eckes Group, now of the Eckes Group. Lisa Eckes. Why have you brought us to your wonderful Hatfield home today? Well, we are about to celebrate 41 years of being in business and, drumroll, the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest cookbook collection in the world. Right here in the 413. <laughs> Who would know? Uh, anyway, it's been, I'm about to, to lead you into the library. It, it, it's been my life's work and it's been my life's pleasure. This is a living, breathing room that I would say easily since college, I've been amassing cookbooks, personalities, friends. I actually, the only room in this old farmhouse that is new is the library. New being like 25 years old now. But I literally knew I would build a space for these people. And that was really important to me. So you ready? Ready. Okay. Let's go look at the Guinness Book of World Records largest cookbook collection here in Hatfield. Oh my God. I love the spiral staircase, first of all, that's in this gorgeous library. Oh my God, this library is incredible. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. I call it my Beauty and the Beast library because that's what I had in mind. Yeah. And I designed it. I worked with Henry Wallace of Belchertown, a builder. I would say, I want this this and this and he would make it happen mm-hmm. i mean it was magic and it is magic yeah, it is like two stories you. of library of bookshelves with a spiral staircase 
what's and going on. And a bar. <laughs> oh, and a bar. I didn't even notice the bar. There's, there's a story to the bar, which is that I had several people say, you cannot put water, liquid, anything in a room with books. And I said, oh, yes, Watch I can. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's where I entertain. Mm. And it was really important. And we have never splashed a book yet. But Monty, you didn't ask me how many. We're going to get to that. Lisa Eckes, you have been doing this for over 40 years. Tell me about what the Lisa Eckes group has done and what got you in, interested in it in the first place. How long is this interview? As oh. long as we need it to be. <laughs> okay. Whew. I've always been a reader. I once got lost when I was a kid. They couldn't find me and I was under the sink in a laundry basket curled up with books. So mm-hmm. books is your answer. I worked in New York. I start, I did PR for a lot of different authors, fiction, nonfiction, a couple of chefs, cookbooks, very Na- Name drop. <sighs> And we did already. We named up Julia Childs. Stop it. I mean, stop it. That's not it. Voila. I mean, one of my earliest cookbook clients, I had had two, Jennifer Harvey Lang, who is married to George Lang of Café des Artistes, which is no longer. I worked on her first book, and the press party, the pub party, was in Warner Leroy's apartment in the Dakota. Wow. I mean, like, I've had such a charmed life. <laughs> it's not said with arrogance. It's said with, holy cow, can you believe it? Mm-hmm. But when I came up here, I was a generalist book publicist. And then slowly, because I had the food contacts, I started getting calls because you know, when you work with George Lang and Jennifer Harvey Lang, then I launched Rose Levy Barenbaum, Cake mm. Bible. And then over time, Emerald Lagasse. And Charlie Trotter's been in my kitchen. And Norman Van Aken. And I mean, chefs, food writers. Like I developed a penchant for saying, oh my God, your food, you've got the best restaurant. Have you thought about doing a book? Mm-hmm. This was before everybody wanted to do a cookbook. Right. You know, And so helping those people find their way It's not an easy path to go down, and it really does matter who you know and what you want to do. One of my earliest, most meaningful agented books was by a woman named Patty Pinner, and uh, it was called Sweets, and we first got a manuscript that was probably three feet tall. Whoa. Completely, (laughs) you know, like... history of all sweets. Yeah, well, it was nothing, but it was everything. Mm -hmm. It was a multi-generational capturing of a matriarchal family through desserts. Wow. And we worked with her for three years to get this shaped and then sold it and Mm. then sold another book for her. And the first book is still selling. And I mean, those kind of stories, I mean, now we're going back 23, 22 years. Those are why I do it, those kind of success stories. And then I have very quirky interests. Like, why are you in this library? Because I know you, I've met you, you have a cool subject. I mean, one of the books I just, I got about a year ago, and I pulled it for you all, and it's the Pat Conroy cookbook. And that's really interesting because I'm a I'm a rabid fiction reader, and I love when it crosses over. So this is a first edition, Pat Conroy, brilliant, amazing, no longer with us, fiction writer and nonfiction writer, and here's his cookbook. It's like Mecca, so the especially office, for someone like me who reads cookbooks like novels. Well, first, you're always welcome, and that's oh, what I do. That's I read a dangerous cookbooks. thing to tell me. You know, you know why? There's a lot of couches here. We could just sleep here. That's exactly why I did this. <laughs> our authors, our friends come, and that's what they do. They, they take books out, they read, they ask questions. However, everything is cataloged. <laughs> 
everything is has its space its place so if you can take anything out but you better put it back in the same spot because lisa eckes will know you have it uh, that's Fair right it's mo like... willems i have your momofuku cookbook i <laughs> totally meant to bring it to you when i saw you the other day right <laughs> exactly which one which momofuku I think it's the first one. Right. go david one of the fascinating parts of, of collecting is seeing how recipes have changed. You know, way back, centuries back, people knew how to cook. It wasn't an art. You just did it. It was, you had to do it. Yeah. And so there weren't detailed lists of ingredients. You used what you could procure. There wasn't necessarily methodology. So we've sort of seen, I mean, I haven't been around for centuries, but four decades plus. So you see how... Cooking has shifted. I mean, one of the things that I took note of, and this is a long time ago, I was driving up to Maine probably 35 years ago, and there was a little tiny one of those little stores that have everything, and there was one of those signage things that you put letters in, and it said, fresh cilantro, fresh blueberries. And I'm like, cilantro? Way up in Maine on Route 1, I'm like, pay attention. Something is happening here. Mm-hmm. You know, and then... The chefs are the ones who introduce new ingredients to the customer, the consumer, and they're like, what's this, you know? And then they want to know, oh, I like it. How do I get more of it? How do I cook with it? Where do I find it? Then the stores often follow, and then you have cookbooks, the how-to. So sort of connecting those dots is really important to, to recognize and to figure out. And I mean, I'm just there for all of it. You're in the reference section, by the way, right mm-hmm. here. Do you have your own Dewey Decimal system? Nope. Everyone wants me to, but no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Every book is listed, the title, the author, the condition, what printing, first printing, 10th printing, and then it's in a main section like reference, Jewish, soup, bread, whatever it is, and then it's micro-tagged. <laughs> <laughs> That's my word, micro, but it's tagged with, um, it might be Jewish vegetables, and it has a vegetable tag, or vegetarian, or gluten-free bread under bread, mm. um, wine and spirits. I like to say, you know, health lives next to diet, uh-huh. and that lives next to, <laughs> you know, fresh herbs. Uh, next to, but not within. No, not within. <laughs> I've actually just moved my health and diet section way up high, because it's my least favorite. I never go there. <laughs> my we- favorites are probably Asian because I love to cook Asian food. So there's a whole corner there that works around the globe. Uh, Chinese, Vietnam, India, all over the globe. You can walk and go, oh my God, look at this book. I can't help We're going gonna- through and going, oh, I have that one. We're going to poke have- around. We're going to poke <laughs> around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we should. I say it's a little cliched, but I mean it. This room fills my soul. Mm. This room is my happy place. This room in the kitchen. Coming up, we'll hear how many titles it took to earn Hatfield's Lisa Eckes, the Guinness record for the most cookbooks. And we want to hear more of your thoughts on whether the word ladies is a microaggression in response to what happened in East Hampton with the superintendent, as well as your take on the history that happened yesterday with former president being charged with 34 felonies. Text us, 1-800-639-9120. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The library is like where I go to visit 
friends. And if I have other authors, I have a lot of friends among my clients, we sit, the drawers are filled with culinary ephemera, which are like advertising, pamphlets, things like that. And we're all sitting, you know, cross-legged on the floor going, oh my God, look at this. Oh my God, look at that. You know, or somebody says, um, I'm working on a preserving book and I go in those drawers and I pull out old pieces of paper that tracks sociologically, culturally, culinarily, the movement of an ingredient or a topic. That's just, I'm so geeky like that, <laughs> but I love it. I absolutely love it. We're in the Hatfield home of Lisa Eckes of the Lisa Eckes Group, or formerly of the Lisa Eckes Group. Right, I'm being kicked out now. <laughs> no. By I Sally know. Eckes, who's also in here. That is not accurate. The daughter of Lisa Eckes. We're passing, she's we're passing handing the, the She's handing the whisk. Yeah. Right, I'm passing the whisk, and it's, it's the Eckes Group now. I'm just going to be kind of sort of more in the background, continuing to build the library, and Sally's leading the agency forward. This is the, now, officially, as of today, the world knows this is the largest cookbook collection in the world, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Is this the largest private cookbook collection? Yes, like, are there private. libraries that have more? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, no, there are many more libraries, way bigger. Uh-huh. Because this is a big library for a private library. It is the largest private library I've ever right. seen that wasn't in, like, Wayne Manor. I'm Batman. Oh, I have to go look at that. <laughs> I'm like, you know, if I go to somebody's house and they have a library, I don't look them in the eye, I go right to the bookshelf. Yeah. But, yes, it's, it's, a private, it's a private library, and it will always evolve. This is not, oh, we're sitting at this number. In fact, because of COVID, it took Guinness three years to respond and give us the designation award. In that time, I've easily added well over another thousand books, wow. if not more. Yeah. So what is the working number that Guinness has recognized as the largest private collection of cookbooks? Four, two, three, nine. Four thousand two hundred and thirty-nine. Oh my goodness. And you said you've added another thousand least, since they last least, counted them. At least. But wait, I have to tell you, I have a little bone to pick, pun intended, mm -hmm. with Guinness because the way their criteria is, they have to have recipes and books, so they would not count my food writings. That whole section up there is all food writings. Roy Andres de Groot and Johnny Apple and Ruth Reichel. I mean, all the people who write about food, but it's not a cookbook. There may be some recipes. They wouldn't count those. Even if they had a recipe in this they otherwise, would. they still wouldn't. It had nope. to be predominantly recipes. Yes, mm. right. They also wouldn't count church, synagogue, the fundraising cookbooks, the spiral bound. What? I know. Why? What? Right, that's really? Whole, like, that's a whole really important genre. Yeah. Come on. On. That's it's, just elitist. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, that's that's what was there first. That's it. That's the home recipes. Yeah. Exactly. So we're, if we talk about those, that's another thousand. Yeah. We had to pull them all off the shelf because we had to film for Guinness and show them every book along with the catalog list. It took us years to do this. <laughs> I'd love to watch that movie. In One, like maybe time lapse. two, yeah. three. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. But yeah, so for me, you know, how do you have a real serious culinary
extraordinary library that people can use without food writings. Mm-hmm. And MFK Fisher. I mean, you know, there's no library worth its salt that doesn't have some MFK Fisher books. I know that sounds snobbish, but if you, it depends. You know, if you just want to make dinner at five o'clock and you're scrambling and you have three kids, you don't need MFK Fisher. But if you want to immerse yourself in understanding the beauty of food and where it comes from and why, the whys of it, you do. <laughs> but Guinness doesn't count those. No, they don't. Is it true that recipes cannot be copyrighted? That anybody, that the books themselves can be published, but that recipes are owned by no one? Partially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the methodology is the part, the step one, step two, step three. That can be copyrighted written. Yeah, I never uh, remember if it's written or written. Right. I know, right? <laughs> right. The ingredients, though, can't be copyrighted. And if you think about it, you know, it's as simple as saying, oh, I'll add a quarter teaspoon salt, and then it's my recipe. You know, how many recipes are there for meatloaf? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there's 20. But, you know, for, for certain basic dishes, it, it's the same ratios. So you change the ratio, that can then be your recipe, but it really isn't. However, there have been many instances of people being called out for plagiarism because it's so similar. Mm-hmm. One of the th- reasons that I go to books as opposed to the internet, because that's always the big question, is if you go to the internet, let's say you look up okra recipes and you're going to see okra and tomato sauce pretty much the same way three four five eight times then you come into the library and you go to the different ethnic sections and the countries and you see how okra is used and you see the vast kinds of recipes that they are in so it's more authentic than the internet. I mean, there's Plus a the place. internet, when you look up a recipe on the internet, they make you go through these obnoxious hoops yes, and yes. little ads before you finally get to what you're looking for right, you with the stupid call, recipe. Right, just There's ways around it, but yes. Yeah. You oh. can just call me and you can come in <laughs> you and You can I'll dictate point it to you. me? No, I'll just <laughs> over the point phone. You. Well, you know, when I, for the first 20 years, I did culinary cookbook PR. And so people, the food editors will call and they're saying, we're writing an article on uh, Mediterranean food and we want a recipe with pomegranate molasses, which is much more common now, but it wasn't 20 years ago. And I would know exactly where to go. Mm-hmm. I would have three or four books to pull from because this is not a show library. This is, a re- I, I call it research. I mean, that's a loose term, mm-hmm. but I know what's where and how to access. And I'm always like, oh my God, I forgot I had that. And then sitting down with it i'm working on a paella dinner with some friends and i know because paella is in my single subject uh, but it also is tagged for chicken and seafood and whatnot but i'm going to pull four or five books and make a conglomeration and figure out my recipe mm-hmm. like that's how i think you like, pa- it's like you a paella cut? paella you want to cut? cook <laughs> So, um, do you like to cook as much as you like to collect these books? I do. Yeah. I love to cook. I'm not a chef. I'm really clear. I'm a good cook. It's very family style. It's very warm and not formal, not multi-course. It's, it's just good food. And it's the company. Ask Sally about sitting around the table as a child. Yeah, what was it like growing up in this intense cooking environment with the, with the, the giants of celebrity chefdom? surrounding you all the time.
it tasted great. You know, I grew I grew up in this industry. I have been working in this space for 38 years to age myself. I'm just taller than when I started out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I didn't I didn't Because you know. are 38 years old. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Now it's official. Um, <laughs> but I have like a semi-traumatic yet now looking back deep appreciation for one of my earliest food memories, which was when my parents were married. Um, that was the trauma part. And then... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shout out to Lou <laughs> Shout out. Hey, Dad. Um... And they had their friends over, uh, Bob and Mary Lou Heiss, who owned um, Coffee Gallery. Coffee gallery. And cook shop. Bob and Heiss was on my show every week yeah, for 17 of years. Course. Oh, he's, he's a dear friend. He's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have this memory of being counter height in the in the kitchen, so you know, probably six. Oh. <laughs> and now that I get together with my friends and do food projects, I love that this is what my parents were doing with their friends, which was homemade sausage making. <laughs> but when you were six years old and you turn the corner of your home kitchen. Your like sanctuary, and there is just a casing being filled at eye level. <laughs> you you remember that? She couldn't cut. We did a Barbara Trop pantry of Asian food, but she wasn't there for that uh-huh. one. <laughs> we- I was here for the Julia Child Chinese dinner, mm-hmm. though, and I do remember the taste of that fried rice because I remember thinking, "This is not the fried rice that I'm used to eating when we go out to." dinner Mm -hmm. and there was now looking back if I really go into that part of my brain and my memory and my stomach I can identify that it was probably soy sauce delivered in a way there was like a fermented bean situation in there that I can still taste to this day but I remember like sitting down to this Chinese feast that my parents had made for Julia Child and thinking this doesn't taste very good <laughs> you know and now that I'm like and it's the, duck sauce and MSG right well right but now it's authentic but, right. right I mean it's just it's really so yeah I'm just a weird combination of modern appreciation but like childhood yeah it was just kind of fun. different and fun <laughs> yeah so you Sally Eckes are now going to be at the helm of the publishing aspect of the Eckes group taking over from your mom Lisa Eckes who has the largest private cookbook collection in the world, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. You heard it here first. But we do live in an internet age, and newspapers are dealing with how to deal with the internet, and radio is dealing with how to deal with podcasts. So what is the future of cookbooks? Oh, geez. Well, it is a tremendous amount of storytelling and a huge array of flavor. And that is spread out across the internet, across the printed page, across the podcasts I listen to, across the radio shows I listen to, like this one. I mean, it's storytelling. It's an experience. And luckily, the corner of the industry that we work in now is storytelling about food and people still have a deep appreciation for holding that in their hands in the kitchen. And it's culture. I mean, the storytelling is also about what's the culture. So we always laugh about our difference in which projects appeal to us. So I did um, a project with Ronnie Lundy called um, Vittles and spelled v-i-c-t-u-a-l-s victuals you know but it's vittles about appalachia what she knows what she lived how she put this into her book it's life-changing and life illuminating and so those kind of deep dives is what really gets my blood coursing sally's working with some um, indigenous chef writers now like to bring forth what people don't think of as just slapping food on the table or you know yeah we've done our share of 365 ways to cook meatloaf you know five ingredients or less that's fine that has a place those books sell well but i want to know you know are there black appalachian farmers and working on a book with an author about that is there a deep dive into 
biscuits beside the everyday biscuit book. Those are a dime a dozen. There is a, there's a book coming out this fall called Bomb Biscuits by Erica Council. Yes. <laughs> Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Last night I was reading a proposal, which is, you know, the pitch somebody puts together when they want to write a book. And some of the comments I was making that we'll go over today is like, the recipes are really interesting. The food is really interesting. But this woman kept talking about the story about coming to the United States and the feeling that she had, she was six years old, the feeling that she had being fed these school lunches and how terrible they were and what a traumatic experience it was. And I was like, write that, start there. Mm -hmm. Like start everything about your pitch with like, I want to read that story. Yeah. And and then we can get to the food because the food is available everywhere. Why should it be on in a book? What what makes it special? What's right. your voice? What's your point of differentiation? There's a million Italian cookbooks. You can see it, you know, five shelves worth. So why <laughs> is there different? And there will be more. Right. So right. what do you have to say to add to the shelf? Right. If, God forbid, your most gorgeous private library I've ever seen in my entire life with a spiral staircase and over 4,000 approved cookbooks from Guinness, creating the Guinness Book of World Records, largest private cookbook collection for you, Lisa. Don't say the rest of that sentence. You have one (laughs) book that you can grab before it goes. Which one do you grab? I I knew you were going to ask that question. That's like saying, which is my favorite child? Is it it Sally? No, it's not. Shameless plug. Shout out Amelia Eckes. You're right. the best ever. Right. The, my, the knife to my fork. So, oh, you know. Oh, nice. Yeah. No, and, and both our, my daughters are in culinary. I, You know what? I'd go down with it because I'd get... <laughs> oh, my God. Best answer I'm ever. Like, I'm going I'm, down with the ship. I would be going, oh, I need this. Oh, no, I want that. Oh, I want that. <laughs> Thanks again to new Guinness Book record holder Lisa Eckes from the Eckes Group in Hatfield with the largest private cookbook collection in the world. It's awesome. It is awesome. And in the brief time we have left, we'll get to some of your messages about East Hampton and the use of ladies in Trump. Bob Burke from Manchester says, as far as this business about Trump is concerned, he should be jailed. I mean, if any other person did something like this, they would be. He's not fit for office. There's been stuff like this happening since 2016. He should not be allowed to run. Thanks, Bob Burke. Meg Gage of North Amherst says about the ladies issue, I understand the temptation to make light of what may seem like an overreaction to Vito Perone's use of the term ladies, but I fear that mockery risks playing into the hands of right-wingers eager to make our new sensibilities and sensitivities about gender look frivolous and ridiculous. We are rapidly learning new ways of thinking about and adjusting to our understanding of gender and challenging literally thousands of years of attitudes. It's a huge deal. We, you should look at the letters to the editor in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. There are people writing from all over the country about this issue. And they're not wrong. Well, yes, they're not wrong. And they're, well, who's wrong and who's right? We'll talk about that off the air. (laughs) Tomorrow on the show, we'll meet the first female director of the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture, Deerfield's own Ashley Randall. What's her vision for agriculture in rural and urban communities, and what are the greatest challenges facing our farmers this season and into the future? And for Passover, the host of the popular Jewish-themed podcast Unorthodox, New York Times magazine writer, I'm just putting S's on everything, Springfield owns Mark Oppenheimer. Plus, our weekly segment, McGoverning with McGovern, got a question for the U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts. Text us, 1-800-639-9120, or email the fab413 at nepm.org. Our director is Tony. Pull him off the mat, done. Our engineer is Betsy Eves, dropping on the hot mics, Cordis. Our technical team is Bart, turn it off and on again. Rankin, Kara, Queen, Box Tactics, Foster, and Punk Rock, Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, B. Beeman, Yonder Mountain String Band, Black Uhuru, My Morning Jacket, Homebody, and the kids, Renee Fleming, Weird Al Yankovic, Frank Sinatra, and Bert from Sesame Street. See you tomorrow!